Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, this episode is a feel-good episode, but with something of a sizable caveat. It's a vegetable that goes along with the uh, the delectable on the plate. Well, I would say that the good news right now is that the sort of extremist attacks on public schools that we have spent a lot of time on this program talking about and we've also written about together and separately, they do seem to be losing steam. And and that, I think, is really good news. But on the other hand, if you're in a community or even an entire state where the war rages on, this comes to you as pretty cold comfort. Yeah, I think that the fact that folks in other communities have managed to beat back extremist attacks on their public schools is not something that is really going to do a whole lot of good for folks in communities where they haven't managed to beat back those attacks. Now, maybe there's something to learn there, but in a lot of communities, I think you know the, the light remains at the end of the tunnel. Well, what I really wanted to do with this episode is to sort of capture what that feels like right now. So I have invited on an education journalist named Laura Papano to talk about her brand new book, School Moms. And it's it's a feel-good book in many ways. Like you come away from that with this stirring picture of people coming off the sidelines to defend their public schools. But we're going to also meet an actual school mom in Oklahoma. And it's impossible to look at Oklahoma right now and think that that is a place where the tide of the culture war is turning because in many ways the opposite is happening. Yeah, it will be interesting to track over the next year, five years, 10 years, how our local schools begin to differ from each other. I think the the pattern that we have seen over the past century is that local schools have come to look more and more like each other. This is not only because of uh, isomorphism, right, a, a pattern towards sameness largely driven by a desire to be legitimate, right, to be a quote-unquote real school, but also because of common state policies and, and federal policies and incentives towards sameness, whether it be from the federal government or philanthropy or, or something else. And I think the common national understanding of what a public school is and does right now is beginning to change a bit and unravel in some places. And it will be interesting. In some cases, interesting is an inappropriate word, right? Depressing, upsetting, horrifying to watch how schools in some communities depart from that norm. Um, But it will nevertheless be something to keep an eye on across the nation's 13,000 school districts. Jack, I think that's such a good point, and I want to revisit that at the end of the episode. But first, we need to bring in our experts, and I'm not letting you off the hook. I want you to prepare to deliver us some good news, and I'm going to challenge you to use one of your favorite words, and that would be 
seed bed. Oh, Jennifer, this is not a challenge. I, I could do it right now, but that's fine. I'll, I'll be standing by. First up today is longtime education journalist Laura Papano. She's got a new book out called School Moms, Parent Activism, Partisan Politics, and the Battle for Public Education. It's an on-the-ground look at the rise of parent activism and the fight for control of our public schools. And the first thing that Laura wants you to know is that this is not a book that she wanted to write. My first line of the book is basically, I didn't plan to write this book. I didn't want to write this book. But covering education for over 30 years, I felt absolutely compelled because what we are hearing out in the air that is attacking and destroying public schools is made up stuff. In the course of reporting on the real things, we are running into these ridiculous assertions that are poisoning the conversation that we should be having. Because the conversation around culture wars is actually not about education. It's not about how do we do the best for every child. What I always loved about covering education was that I felt that essentially it was a problem-solving enterprise. Who has a better idea for how to reach students who are struggling in reading? How do we make students more effective in their learning? Which is how, in July of 2022, Laura found herself in Tampa, Florida, for the founding summit of a brand new group called Moms for Liberty. I went to that conference as a journalist. I registered under my name, but you know, I didn't call undue attention to myself. I did wear a red blazer with a American flag and pinched into the lapel. There are many times as a journalist that you walk into a situation, you're like, this may personally not kind of be my jam, but I hear the point. I hear the reasonableness. I hear the perspective. But what shocked me was I got to the Moms for Liberty conference And it was anything but. It was this parade of extremism that was kind of just turn over the rock and here it is. Now, when Laura isn't writing about K-12 schools and higher education, she is a big theater buff. She sits on the board of a theater group and she attends shows whenever she can. And as Laura took in the spectacle of that inaugural Moms for Liberty convening, she couldn't shake the feeling that she was watching an elaborate theatrical production. What I saw was a form of theater. And what I mean by that was that the messaging, the language, the costumes, it was as if this was all scripted so that this group of 500 mostly moms would be compelled to forget common sense and embrace the messaging that was pounded in session after session after session. The message was that your children are in grave existential danger. And so all of the reticence that you might have about jumping into the public eye, running for school board, speaking out at school board meetings, you need to just toss that away because your children are in danger. And like moms always do, you are willing to step out and face that danger for the sake of your children. 
to convince these moms to take action, the orchestrators of this production had to paint a picture of public schools as horrifying places. Now, if you've spent any time in the world that Laura is describing, you've probably encountered the name James Lindsay. He's a regular guest on the Moms for Liberty podcast and the author of a book entitled The Marxification of Education. And yes, I have actually read it. Well, this was Laura's first time being on the receiving end of his brand of incendiary rhetoric. I remember my jaw dropped when he stood up and essentially said that, you know, sending your children to public school for 30 to 35 hours a week is equivalent to sending them to a Maoist reform prison camp. And he's a very fast speaker, very fluid speaker. But if you actually look at the content of what he's saying, it's absolutely bonkers. And yet he does it with such authority, like a good actor, that people in the audience just think, oh my gosh, he's so smart. He knows everything. And let me just believe whatever he says. And then when other people echo the things that he says, when Ron DeSantis gets up and says those same things and uses some of the same language... Of course, if schools really are like Maoist prison camps, then drastic action is required. And that was everywhere in the rhetoric that Laura was hearing. Take, for example, the commentary around the controversial Don't Say Gay law that had just been enacted in Florida. One of the board members, a lawyer, stood up to emphasize that, yes, that passed, but we're going to have to make some additions to it. And his metaphor was, you know, just like, you know, take an AK-47. You need to add on a flashlight. You need to add on a finder. I couldn't believe that he had just used that as a metaphor relating to education. And it was only a handful of weeks after the Uvalde shooting. But even more stunning to me was the very fact that no one in the room said a thing. What Laura didn't hear much talk about was anything having to do with, well, actual education. Yes, there were the dire warnings about social and emotional learning as a Trojan horse for Marxism and the calls for back-to-basics learning. But the more she listened, the more she realized that Moms for Liberty and its sponsors, the Leadership Institute, the Christian nationalist cell phone company known as Patriot Mobile, the various PACs, and don't forget the five Republican presidential candidates who appeared on stage. All of them were focused on something very different from what actually happens in schools. And that is what she found most concerning of all. There's a very real way in which what they have ignited is a kind of synergy between politics and education. I mean, the beauty of schools, I always felt, was that schools have been a place where I never knew what people's politics were. We just all cheered for the same team. We'd walk through the hallways. We'd work with other moms. You know, you felt like all the kids were, in a sense, your own. They were part of your community. And I think one of the real tragedies of this is that they have really inserted politics in a very harsh, wedge-like way into what should be a communal enterprise. I mean, public schools are a gift from the community to the next generation. And that is being poisoned by the injection of kind of a political agenda and a power agenda. 
that experience set in motion a reporting adventure. Laura crisscrossed the country to get a firsthand look at what was happening and what were suddenly education hotspots. And for the first time in her long career, she found herself paying close attention to school board races. In Texas, for example, national groups and companies with deep pockets were now pouring money into low turnout local races. Patriot Mobile is a Christian cell phone network that donates 5% of its profits to far-right causes. And in January 2022, they spun off a PAC, a political action committee, Patriot Mobile Action. They identified 11 school board candidates in four different districts and spent over $400,000 supporting their candidacy. Now, because they're a super PAC, they can't donate directly to the candidates. But what I started noticing when I started looking through all the filings was that they were spending a lot of money at Axiom Strategies, which is a Kansas City political consulting firm that so happens to also provide help for Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin and Ted Cruz. And so suddenly you have these very glossy, polished flyers, circulars, mailers, box trucks. What you realize is that the power of this sort of money in a small local race has huge consequences. And it was precisely those consequences that so interested Laura. In other words, once a Christian nationalist cell phone company succeeds in getting its hand-picked candidates elected, what were the policy priorities of those new school board members? In a word, books. Take, for example, the Keller School District in North Texas, where the selection of books for classrooms has become a central issue. There was a librarian at one school board meeting that went on for five and a half hours, and she stood up to the mic, and I still remember seeing her swirly hair, her glasses, her paper, and she was very respectful, but she said, we don't feel trusted. She said, we can no longer, in a timely manner, get books about camels or squirrels or football. We cannot get the latest publication of The Diary of the Wimpy Kid or the Guinness Book of World Records. She said, children are asking me, where are the new books? Where are the new books? And she said, I don't tell them that it's political. And that same school board then banned any mention of gender fluidity in any book in the district. So you have a situation where the intention, the goal may be to stop certain kinds of books, but what they're doing is they're making it harder for all children to get access to books to read. Now, I know it may be hard to believe, but in many ways, School Moms is really a feel-good book. Laura documents not just the partisan attacks on public education and libraries, but the resistance. What we often refer to on this show as the backlash to the backlash. She visits places that listeners to this show will recognize, like Croydon, New Hampshire, and hotspots you might not have heard of, Williamson County, Tennessee, and Doylestown, Pennsylvania. And Laura's serious reporting chops are evident on every page, which is why I was so eager to have her enlighten us on what groups like Moms for Liberty really want. She says that to begin to answer that question, we have to start with some context. You know, you look at the fact that 90% of children in America attend public schools. And then you look at the demographics and you look at the fact that in 1987, 70% of those public school students were white. And then you look at 2020 and 47% of them are white. 
And the projections are that by 2030, 43% will be white. I mean, just on a basic kind of country working basis, we need everyone to feel that they belong, that they learn. We need them to not just feel they can learn, but to actually learn. We need them to participate in our society. We need them to be brought in to our community, not be pushed to the outside as if they don't belong. And that's one of the things that just absolutely angers me is the idea that some children don't belong. And I think that is just outrageous, absolutely outrageous. I mean, I've spent a good part of my career writing about, mentoring, being involved with students who Moms for Liberty would feel did not belong. And I have watched them become grand successes and watched them build lives and be happy, productive members of our society. And you know what? That is exactly what we need to be focusing on right now. Okay, so Jack, I want to bring you in. And I open the show by saying that this was in many ways a good news episode, but with like a big bad news caveat. And I, I think that an example of that is, you know, there's been some great recent coverage of places where activists have really beaten back this sort of extremist threat. Yeah, one of them is Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And listeners may be familiar uh, with Bucks County just because so much wild stuff was happening there. And if they aren't familiar, there's been some great reporting, including places like Vanity Fair. And the thing that I think is, is inspiring, despite this happening in the context of some really frightening activity, is that residents of Bucks County had to get involved in their local public schools in a way that I imagine residents haven't been involved for a century and a half, right? One of the things that I've talked about previously on this show is the fact that we take public education for granted. And it it's remarkable, right? One of the observations I've made repeatedly is that if you proposed a taxpayer-funded system of public education that would be open to all and would serve 50 million young people in this country and that we would spend the better part of a trillion dollars on it annually, you would laugh at me, right? We couldn't even make public libraries happen today, right? We, we can't agree on anything in Congress. And yet, here we are taking for granted this pretty remarkable achievement. And you know, there are other reasons that we take it for granted, but one of them is the fact that it operates, right? You can drop your kid off at 8 o'clock in the morning for 180 days a year, and that kid is going to get an education. Now, yes, there are caveats. The education will be, in many ways, something you can complain about. It will be uneven across place. But the fact that we can count on public education happening year in and year out. For the most part, the quality is reasonable enough that people will continue to send their kids there. Means that we don't have to do things like get really involved in local school board politics. We don't have to organize. We don't have to concern ourselves with matters of the curriculum. And these are actually things that 
we should be concerned about and we should be involved in, not because of a crisis, although that's why folks have gotten reengaged, but because it matters for the quality of our public schools and it matters for the quality of our democracy. And that's the piece that is most interesting and exciting to me is that I think public education can be a seedbed for democracy, not just because of the things that young people learn in schools, but because we have a democratically run system with infrastructure in 13,000 communities, as we might define them, given that there are 13,000 school districts, and 98,000 public schools. We've talked previously on the show, right, we've done episodes on public education as a kind of seedbed for democracy. People running for school board, for instance, and using that as a launching pad into careers in politics, particularly candidates of color. And I think that if we can re-engage in public education right now for the purpose of ensuring that it is not hijacked by partisans and pulled apart by ideological extremists, we might remember how powerful it is as an organizing device for local democratic activity, which could then do things like reinvigorate our sense of what it means to be citizens in this country and what it means to be civically involved, that it isn't just showing up in November to cast a vote in a national election. It isn't trying to get out of jury duty or maybe even serving on jury duty, right? It is being involved in the lifeblood of your community and making decisions often alongside people with whom you disagree and learning how to disagree in a manner that eventually leads to some kind of decision that everybody can live with. I really like that, Jack. And I'm um, remembering that we actually have a chapter in our book called Democracy is Not a Spectator Sport. <laughs> but I think I speak for many in our vast listening audience when I put this question to you. What is a seedbed? <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, we've got to get you into the garden. Next up, we're headed out of the seedbed and into the panhandle. We're Oklahoma bound. That's where our next guest was born and bred. And the first thing you need to know about Ashley Daly is that in many ways, she is the unlikeliest of school moms. I was actually the mom that said, I'm embarrassed to say this. I was like, I'm not going to do anything. I may not go to PTA. I'm not going to help with things. I might go on a field trip because that's about safety and like being with my daughter. But like, I'm not going to be like that mom, which is horrible really now that I think about it because our children need us at school and our teachers need us at school. And I think it also maybe points to like how we treat the idea of being an involved parent in the media. We really, I guess, put down moms that try hard. Fast forward a few years, and well, let's just say that things haven't quite worked out that way. Like many of the school moms Laura chronicles in her book, Ashley stepped off of the sidelines because circumstances basically left her with no choice. Now, if you've paid any attention to Oklahoma, you know that its top education official, Ryan Walters, seems intent on blowing up his state's public schools. You may think I'm exaggerating. I am not. He recently appointed the brains behind 
behind the infamous and inflammatory social media account known as Libs of TikTok to a state library advisory committee. And when it turned out that some teachers had mistakenly received bonuses intended to lure educators to Oklahoma, Walters demanded the money back and called the teachers liars. This, by the way, was all in a course of a single week. For Ashley, her transformation into that mom began a couple of years ago as education politics in Oklahoma was really starting to heat up. Things came to a head when the state school board voted to downgrade the accreditation of the schools in Tulsa, where her daughter goes, over an alleged violation of Oklahoma's new anti-CRT law. I went to a state school board meeting that concerned my district. And I saw the board members do something I thought was really wrong. I was just so disturbed by that. I think that we all as parents just want to live in a bubble where we believe the people that are in charge of our schools are genuine and care. And they may have some like differences in how they think things should be done, but that not that any of them would be attacking a teacher or a district for political reasons. One key detail in this story, when that state school board vote took place back in 2022, essentially punishing a school district attended by 33,000 kids, Ashley was the only parent in the room. That experience seared her and made her determined to learn as much as she could about education policy and to bear witness to what was happening in those meetings. And so that's exactly what she did. She kept showing up. And before long, Ashley wasn't alone anymore. I know that most of our parents don't have the time or money to be able to be at a midday meeting in the middle of the state. And sometime six months in, there was this woman that started coming and she works with Rural Schools Coalition in Oklahoma. And she started being there and we made friends. And she said, you know, I saw you up there and I thought like that woman needs backup. And she started being there. And then this group, Defensive Democracy, showed up in the summertime. They've been finding their place. And I've become very in love with them, very comfortable with them. And I adore the work that they're doing and and even consider myself part of it. So now I do know, like when I, I had COVID for the first time last week and there was a state board meeting and I couldn't be there, but I wasn't worried about there not being a voice representing all of us, all of us public school parents, because I knew defensive democracy would be there. And they like, they get there really early and they make pancakes and sausage and they give people coffee. And it's nice to know that they're there. Back in the fall, Ryan Walters, whose official title is Superintendent of Public Instruction, began threatening to take over the Tulsa Public Schools. The rationale changed depending upon the day. Some days it had to do with religious freedom, other times it was test scores, then it was woke ideology, or even ties to the Chinese Communist Party. To Ashley and all of her new friends, the ever-shifting justifications really didn't matter. They just knew that they had to fight back. I was able to pull together a lot of the people that I'd made friends with the year before. As I was learning, I just kept meeting different people. I kept trying to like have meetings with like who's in charge of this and who knows this and what might they know. And and that paid off when it was time to get people together to say, like, no, we don't want our school taken over. And so I got a hold of all of those people and we like sat in a room together and we made big plans for how to resist that action. We still get together off and on, but it tends to still pull around like emergency situations. But I think that at this moment, we've all realized this whole uh, spring semester is an emergency. 
In other words, this unlikeliest of school moms is now an organizer and a really good one. But here's the thing about organizing, and I'm guessing that I don't have to explain this to many of you who are listening. It is exhausting, especially when you're up against someone like Orion Walters, who is first and foremost a performer for the right-wing media outrage machine. I'm like, where do I spend my time? And also, how do I still feel joy? How do I, how do I not have anxiety attacks? And then I feel like gaslit too, where I'm like, is this as big a deal as I tell myself? I guess I think that's like probably a problem of a lifetime is figuring out how to care a lot, but not carry too much. I guess I can see why it's hard for other people to engage because it's a balance that I've always thought of myself as a very like able to control my emotions person. But just thinking about someone like Ryan Walters making all the choices for my daughter or for the children that live in my city that I see on the street in my neighborhood. It's, I don't want him in charge. I don't just not want him in charge. I want people that love them and want them to learn to read and like have lots of compassion for educators. He should care that my teachers are stressed out because that's hard on my child and because it's hard on the teachers. Looking back on her journey, Ashley finds it almost impossible to believe that she once looked at the label of school mom and said, no thanks. I think that I didn't realize that it was going to be such a community. It hadn't fully hit me that, you know, my daughter will be at school and these are the people that are taking care of her and that is such a sacred act to take care of someone's child. Of course I want to know them. And of course I want to know the parents of the other children. And it's really been a really awesome opportunity to get to know more people in my city and in my community that I might not have chosen to know. And I think that's really important for our city that we spend time together like that. Back to education journalist Laura Papano, Oklahoma is not one of the places she chronicles in School Moms, but Ashley's unlikely transformation and the story of that parent-powered coalition coming together to resist Ryan Walters and his brand of education extremism is exactly the sort of organizing she found again and again. And while there are dads and grandparents involved, it has really been moms who are at the center of this resistance. Moms have really created kind of sturdy organizations to counter point by point by point the misinformation. And it's hard and detailed work. It's very easy to say we want parental rights and much harder to pick that apart and say, well, what exactly are we talking about? Or to say, you know, there's pornography in the library. And it's much harder to talk about the fact that libraries are places, as one librarian said, for inquiry for all children to find books that they need. Let's be honest, moms have always been involved in organizing schools. They just didn't get very much recognition or credit. Having been a PTO mom myself, you recognize that you are invisible, not appreciated, and that you're working hard. But at the same time, you know what? Moms are incredibly organized. They know how to network. They know how to create support across different groups of people. They know how to get things done. Moms get things done. And that is precisely why this book that was inspired by a gathering of political extremists in Florida back in 2022 turns out not to be a bad news story, but one that's actually really hopeful. I think that there's a certain kind of empowerment that's going on right now. 
and a certain kind of recognition that woman-led power, mom-led power is a legitimate and important force. And I think we're seeing it. It's become visible in ways that it has often been not visible to people. A big thanks to our special guest, education journalist Laura Papano, who is the author of the new book, School Mobs, Parent Activism, Partisan Politics, and the Battle for Public Education. Definitely put it on your must-read list. And Oklahoma's very own Ashley Daly, a reluctant school mom and now one of my heroines. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about the deepening divide between red states and blue states when it comes to education policy. And we will be revealing the topic of this episode's in the weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. I'm teaching this spring inside a Massachusetts prison. Jack's got some questions for me about what I've learned so far, and I am eager to share. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. So, Jack, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that we're starting to see a trend whereby schools in particular regions, communities, or even whole states are starting to look more different from one another than they have in the past. And I'm, I'm, I know you're going to be eager to trot out your other favorite word besides seedbed, and that would be isomorphism. <laughs> I already used it. I don't need to use it again. And I thought that was a really interesting observation. And you and I just wrote a piece that came out, and we were making the case that one of the big differences we're starting to see between red states and blue is the level of disinvestment from schools in red states that we argue is right around the corner, that we have all these states now that have enacted these huge voucher programs that are, big surprise, way more expensive than initially advertised, and that those programs are being rolled out at the exact same time that these states have also cut taxes on corporations and their wealthiest residents. And the result of those things taken together is that it's only a matter of time before you see red state legislators saying, you know what, we've got, you know, we've got a deficit, we have to cut something, let's start with the schools. Yeah. 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 Just think back to five or 10 years ago when we hit the high watermark for sameness, right? When it seemed quite possible that Common Core could sweep in new national standards. And this would not be unprecedented in, you know, economically prosperous nations that do public education, right? In many European countries, for instance, there's a central ministry of education, there's a national curriculum, there are national teacher licensure programs. And we have never had that in the United States. We have always had a kind of uneasy, unsettled tension between national or state interests and powers and local interests and powers. And for most of the last century, the pendulum really swung in the direction of centralization. And in many ways, that's a good thing because when you get more aggregation in education, you have more opportunities for equity. And so we actually saw more fair funding happening over the past century. We saw civil rights enforcement. But one of the problems there is you get increasing 
sameness when you get standardization. And that's not really a great recipe for excellence in a field that requires so much context specificity. I'm going to try to hang on to a silver lining here and say that even though the reason why we are seeing the system become more different from community to community is because of attacks on public education and ideologically motivated policy efforts, that Actually, there is an opportunity here for re-engaging local people, right? The comment I made in the middle of the episode, re-engaging folks in actively shaping their local public schools. And I think there is a lot of potential there for striking an effective balance between what it means to govern schools locally and have them respond to local needs, while also recognizing that there are important state and federal interests that can do a lot to advance equity and to ensure the rights of all young people in schools. Well, Jack, I have to ask you, because something about your delivery style makes me think that it's possible that after quite a long break, you are back in the classroom. <laughs> I was pedantic, was I? Is that what you're going for? Yes, I'm, I'm back. And, uh, and if my, my master's and PhD students are listening right now, then, then extra credit. Can you imagine that they they listen to you in your class for many hours and then they go home and listen to you on the pod? I think probably they listen to me in class and are waiting for you to interrupt me with some sort of snarky comment. Yes, I bet they would love to have me drop in on the class just so I could undercut you in some way. We could zoom you in. You could just be a lurking presence uh, <laughs> on the screen. Well, once again, you have set me up perfectly to reveal the topic of our In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. We're going to talk about what and specifically where I'm teaching. For the first time in my life, I'm teaching in a prison this semester. And because that experience comes directly out of one of our episodes, I thought it would be really cool to share a little bit about what it's been like and what I've learned. And so if this topic intrigues you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter for a few dollars a month. You get things like a custom reading list, uh, pay a little more and you get a complimentary copy of a book. And today you get <laughs> to hear book. me talk about <laughs> any, any book, any great book. expectations. And today you get to hear me talk about what it's like to teach in prison. For those of you who are ending your journeys here. Thanks for listening. And you know the things that you can do to support the show. Make sure you're a subscriber so the latest episode drops into your feed. Give us a rating if you haven't already. As uh, regular listeners know, I have become obsessed with the Christian inspirational show, Have You Heard? And would definitely like to come in above them in searches for our podcast. So um, go on, give us a rating. I think that'll help us. Um, if you've got ideas for shows, we always love hearing them from the Have You Heard mailbag. And we're on both Twitter and Blue Sky or whatever Twitter's called these days, X, um, at Have You Heard Pod on X and 
I think just have you heard on Blue Sky anyway, easy enough to search for. Oh, oh, Jack, one more exciting announcement. So as everyone knows by now, you and I have a book coming out this summer. It's called The Education Wars. And we're already getting requests from folks wanting to know if we're going to do virtual reading groups like we did the last time. And the answer is yes. And we'll put a link up on our website so that you can send us an inquiry. Yeah, for those who did a reading group, Last time, the general rules apply. I think we said get like 10 people together and we'll join you for your last session. We'll pop in via Zoom at no cost because, you know, that's how we roll. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 